0: This is The Court Leader's Advantage, a podcast series for court professionals and by court professionals. Brought to you by thecourtleader.net and in cooperation with NACO, the National Association for Court Management. In this episode on mental health in the courts, we bring the discussion home. In previous episodes, we talked about the extent of the problem nationally, and how it affects each community. We discussed the need for community collaboration. We explored the challenge of criminal competency to stand trial. And we learned how mental health manifests itself in trauma in our young people. Today, we're asking, what should our courts be doing now? I'm Pete Kiefer and welcome to the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. This month is the last of our five episode discussion with members of the National Judicial Task Force to examine state court's response to mental illness. Some of the topics we'll explore include, what should judges and court administrators be doing right now to address this crisis? How do we educate the public about the realities of mental health? What kind of role will court staff play in this new model for courts? And what advice do these panelists have for the rest of us? I'm joined today by the Honorable Christopher Goff, Justice of the Indiana Supreme Court. Scott Block, Statewide Behavioral Health Administrator for the Illinois Administrative Office of the Courts. Walter Thompson, Peer Recovery Support Specialist and retired non commissioned officer in the United States Army. And Patty Tobias, Principal Court Management Consultant for the National Center for State Courts. Thank you all for joining today's podcast. Justice Goff, I watched the recent session at the NACA Manual Conference on the work of the National Mental Health Task Force. Now to understand the theme of that presentation, what is the one thing you think courts ought to be doing right now to address the mental health crisis in the justice system? Convene
1: your stakeholders, but uh, probably the the more important part of my answer to your question is prepare for that meeting. And what I uh, am really excited about is what uh, the task force has put together to equip judges when they're trying to prepare for that meeting with their stakeholders. When they're trying to prepare for that initial meeting with their stakeholders, it's important for judges to realize that they're not alone in trying to offer an alternative response to law enforcement in their communities. And the task force has put together a package of resources, one in particular that trial judges will find helpful is uh, called the Leading Change Guide. And the Leading Change Guide is just chock full of helpful suggestions on what court professionals, judges in particular, need to do when they understand this phenomenon, when they understand that nationally, we uh, made a conscious decision to deinstitutionalize folks living with serious mental illness and, and put them back in their communities. And when you take a population out of an institutional environment, Uh, where everything is unified, services, budgets, and you put them in a community setting where people really need to get out of their silos and work collaboratively to find common solutions, Uh, it's important to be strategic about that. And I love the Leading Change Guide because it gives judicial officers some of the best tools available to not only have that conversation and educate folks up and and get their buy-in, but to really equip their communities for success. The resources of the task force are available online at ncsc.org backslash behavioral health. And so again, I would start by convening my stakeholders, but before I convene them, I would spend an afternoon, a day, maybe two days, really uh, educating myself on uh, what tools are out there to have a successful first meeting and really move the ball forward in this area. Scott Block. I'd just like to add a couple comments
2: to reinforce Justice Goff's commentary. And I would wholeheartedly agree that one of the first things that we could do in the judicial branch is embrace and exercise our power of convening those multidisciplinary and cross-sector stakeholders But the other piece of that that I'd like to mention is that I in the state behavioral health administrator role often provide counsel to trial court administrators who feel overwhelmed with the breadth of the mental health issues related to individuals within their courts. And I do want to assure today's audience as I do those trial court administrators that no one expects wholesale reform or overnight change what we really need to do is determine our starting points and a starting point that makes sense for our state or trial courts. And this can look very different across different communities. So taking that first step is often the hardest, but uh, we definitely need to engage all the players and justice partners that could help us achieve these, these goals. Walter Thompson?
3: Well, I think is that's me as far as my role is. It gives that background as far as what they do when they get there, and how to get there inside the communities there. So as I go out, as I talk to people before they come into court, before everything goes on, we just try to let them know what they can do, how they can do it, and what resources they have for themselves to to make sure this happened. Because to what what Judge golf was saying is, you know, you how you want to change things, how you want to go about it, and that's what the peer specialist does once you get there. And then once you start acting uh, on the clients, then now you're able to help them more. Patty Tobias?
4: I agree with everything that uh, Justice Goff and Scott and Walter have talked about. You know, the first step is just awareness, awareness that there are some real serious challenges and it doesn't matter what kind of docket you have or or what your role in the courts is. You know, you might be the the clerk of the court uh, working in the area of child welfare or uh, family law. It doesn't matter what your position is, but if you have some general awareness of uh, the impact that our courts are having on those that are appearing before us, those with serious mental illness or trauma. I think that's the first step. And then as Justice Goff mentioned, it's, it's getting a little smarter, spending a little time uh, with the resources that are available. There's a a lot of information uh, and resources that the task force has prepared. So, you know, again, if you want to get started in the criminal area or if you want to get started in the civil area, no matter what your position is, uh, take a look at some of those resources and start asking questions uh, of others uh, that you see. And then, again, supporting that role of the, the role of convening and working with stakeholders across systems But the big message that we always like to convey is just get started. Uh, There's a lot of work ahead of us, and you don't have to have a 10-year plan. It may take us 10 years (laughs) in each of our jurisdictions, but the important area is to just get started and have an awareness and um, get smarter about uh, the challenges, but more importantly, the solutions that are out there. Walter?
0: Health experts have said that individuals with mental health issues are more likely to be victims than perpetrators. Yet when the public thinks about crime and the mentally ill, I dare say they think about John Hinckley. They think about Mark David Chapman. They think about Simon Marshall, who just pushed Michelle Go to her death in a New York City subway platform. How do we change the public's perception of criminal justice and the mentally ill?
3: Well, I think it's about education. It's about, it's about learning how people act and how people are. You know, dealing with mental illness of peer specialists, we have to go through as far as when we get someone there and understand that their education on what they need to do and how they need to do it. And I'm not talking about just educating the clients. I'm talking about educating your community. Because what I'm doing is now is, I'm going out right now letting the community know that we're dealing what type of mental illness we're dealing with, what kind of community you have. They're saying is you got a person that's keeping arrested, that you thinking is this just a criminal? No, let them understand that this person suffers from a mental illness and what we got to do with it. So the education of your community, the education of your people, that's one thing that you need to do. And now people will no longer say, well, he just has this problem. He's just a criminal. But no, the person really suffers from mental illness. Now you got to go through to getting them the treatment they need. you got to go through to get the medication and just the overall education of your community. When your community understands what mentally illness is, now they're able to help people more. So it just won't just go to the courts. You'll be able to catch that before it actually gets to the courts once you educate your community. Scott. On the May podcast episode,
0: Judges Kathleen Quigley and Teresa Delick proposed that all court staff receive trauma awareness training. Now, this implied that staff should be given a more extensive role in this whole effort. What kind of role do you see court staff playing in this expanded mental health model? I believe we need to look at trauma in the larger
2: context of behavioral health as a whole the marginalization, stigmatization stigmatization of mental illness and substance use disorders is significant within our courts and often these issues do stem from an untreated or underlying trauma. Building a court culture that recognizes signs and symptoms of mental illness, substance use, and even trauma, and then understanding the effects on individuals and families is key to developing appropriate and effective responses In a so-called expanded mental health model, I'm a big proponent of training all court staff in recognizing signs and symptoms, and there are many curriculums out there for uh, laypersons and non-behavioral health professionals, curriculums such as mental health first aid or de-escalation type of trainings, but The key is is all court staff receiving trainings, including our clerks, our bailiffs, our court reporters, and and looking at how our institution views and responds to these issues and, and developing responses in a way that provide the best possible outcome for the public service we perform. And then on the flip side of this, as court professionals, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that we too are very susceptible to vicarious trauma, compassion, fatigue, whatever you'd like to call it but repeated exposure to often troubling and or even abnormal types of events really requires that we turn the lens inward and look for ways to ensure the mental health and wellness of those that are also tasked with the administration of justice.
4: And on top of that, I mean, uh, uh, Scott's exactly right. We Also, this is training that is required and necessary for all of our judges across the nation The task force is beginning a pilot project actually this weekend, uh, working with the Judges and Psychiatrists Leadership Initiative to train the trainers. We want to train judge and psychiatrist teams that will be available in every state. It's not going to happen tomorrow. It will take some time, but we hope to have a judge and psychiatrist team available and equipped to teach uh, our judges about mental illness, about substance use disorders, about trauma, about race and equity, and um, how to better respond in the courtroom and in the community. So we're really excited and now are at a point where we're beginning to think about implementation of the task force recommendations, which will include training opportunities for both court professionals, court staff, no matter what position, as well as our state trial judges across the nation.
0: Justice Goff, it sounds like the behavioral health diversion model that the task force envisions is going to be very expensive. For example, many, if not most jurisdictions, don't have nearly the available resources to address such an increase in needed mental health services. How does a court go about convincing funding bodies to fund such an expanded model? Uh, a couple of thoughts.
1: You know, it it, uh, it doesn't cost anything to organize, and and so th- that's the first point. And I, I think it's it's worth emphasizing because uh, this collaborative approach, getting your stakeholders together and asking, you know, how do we do things now? What do we need to do differently? and what resources do we need to get there? It's really kind of the conversation that you need to have. SAMHSA, when they roll out kind of the deliverables around the the National 988 Suicide Prevention Hotline, they tell states to think about equipping all of your communities with, one, someone to call, two, someone to respond, and three, somewhere to go. And so that's really the, the conversation that community stakeholders need to have. Oftentimes they're not going to have an alternative in place, and so they need to plan. They need to reach out to their state supreme courts, uh, somebody like Scott, or somebody in a position of court services who who helps uh, navigate relationships with local trial courts and find out what resources are available to plug in and, and fill in those gaps. So, point one is you know organize. That doesn't cost anything, and at least have a working understanding of where your gaps are. Two is really this. This problem is one that when you start having a conversation about it, you'll find out that everyone is talking about. And there's a lot of money, a lot of resources that are out there. The task force has spent significant time cultivating relationships with stakeholder groups. Chief among them probably is the National Association of Counties they're very aware of this problem and they're very interested in it because when people living with mental illness uh, have no place to go but the county jail that costs a lot of money and county commissioners county council persons you know they're not fans of that that process there's a lot of money a lot of federal money that has been uh, rolled out to municipalities to cities. And unless you are organized in a way that allows you to have conversations with these very important stakeholders, you as a court, uh, as the chief convener is oftentimes almost all the time, the chief referral source for uh, these mental health services are going to be missing out on resources that are intended to address this problem in your community. So that's point two, you you really need to organize and have meaningful conversations with your stakeholders, chief among them, the folks that are making these financial decisions. And that's so important because right, oftentimes these folks are part-time. They're not gonna understand what you do unless you establish a relationship with them and you actually explain to them how important it is and how meaningful their work can be to solving the problem. The third piece is this, The federal enabling legislation that created 988 requires states to to implement a version of 988 in every state, but it also comes with it, an ability to assess a surcharge for use of the service. And that surcharge can be used to to build up the infrastructure necessary to to make the system work. And a a really small number of states have taken advantage of that surcharge. And, And I think it's important for stakeholders, right? A unified justice system to speak as a one and really take the time to explain to the members of their state legislature, to their governor, why it's important, why it's worthwhile to properly fund 988 so that there actually is the ability to sustain this alternative pathway for folks who uh, enter into the criminal justice system or at risk of entering into the criminal justice system perhaps the child welfare system, really because a community has no other alternative fielded. So those are just a few points that I would make. Doesn't cost anything to plan. Critically important to convene and and have collaborative uh, discussions. And make sure that you're taking advantage of this federal legislation and building uh, an infrastructure that's sustainable.
4: I just wanted to add one thing to everything that Justice Goss said, and that is what we're seeing is some significant federal funding coming through what are called certified community behavioral health clinics. And the federal government is funding these certified community behavioral health clinics, and there are requirements to reach out both ways for the courts to reach out to the clinics and for the clinics to reach out and see how they can best assist and provide assessment and treatment services to individuals in that community. So I'd really encourage every court administrator, everyone listening, To determine, do they have a certified community behavioral health clinic already in their community? And if they don't, reach out and find out what you can do to obtain a certified community behavioral health clinic in your community. So that's another opportunity for funding that, again, I think the plan over the next few years is that all communities will have access to that funding stream.
3: Peter, I'm also the Vice Mayor of Florida City, Florida. And I'm looking at that also, that clinic, the Certified Community Behavioral Health Clinic, because I know what that can do as far as getting people to court and handling their mental illness. And you can be doing it right at a community level. And now that right there starts is the education part of what's going on. Because now you're inside your community and you got a behavior center. As I ride around, I see a lot of medical centers but I don't see the behavior. And I know what's in the courts because I'm in in court at least three to five days a week concerning mental illness and five days a week outside in the communities. So I know this is what they need as far as that because I know they have funding for it. So it's about, uh, the funding is expensive, but it's worth everything it is because you're now actually helping your community you're helping the courts, you're helping your county, you're helping every little faucet around you, even the families, because it's not just gonna to, going to affect the, the client that goes to court, but it's gonna help his family. So it's gonna create that ripple effect. We all talk about that ripple effect, but it comes as a negative. But now the ripple effect by having these clinics and now having the money to do everything, is gonna be a positive effect to everything that's going on. So What Patty said about these certified community behavior health clinics is, I think, is one of the things that's on the mark. And I know I'm trying to help my city out with that right now.
0: Walter, the sequential intercept model, particularly at Intercept Zero, appears to rely heavily on private citizens taking that first step connecting individuals with mental health services. Taking that first step on a friend or a loved one can really be traumatic. How do we train the general public to take on the significant new responsibility?
3: You got to get out there, and and this is what the peers are. You know, we're not an office sitting around people. We're community. We're community based, and I'm glad I have a couple of hats. Like I said earlier, as the vice mayor, now I can go around and I can be in my city and I can start talking to people and I can start seeing. When you start telling people, okay, I work at the mental health court, and when they hear mental that's when they start speaking well I got a brother, I got a son, I got a daughter, I got a sister that's going through that. So as what we start doing is we start developing this as the peers we're able not to just sit in the court and wait for our, our participants to come there, we go out and we start educating them on the programs that they can go through and they can see and we start when we start passing that around, you get less people to talk about because people start going to the programs more. We actually go to the independent living uh, services and we talk to them, the people that's there. We go for there, we go to the, the centers where they actually doing their PSR, psychosocial recovery classes, and we participate then. And so when they start seeing this, they start saying, wait a minute, I can too be the same way that you are. Especially when we start telling people what we are going through. Now is when I'm talking to the participants here, And I tell them that I am suffering from PTSD, severe PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And they see how I function around. They want to be a part of it, but it's a part of their recovery. So, you know, that's when we come say, okay, you got it, I got it. We're going to recover together. And we start using all the tools that we're using that we're in court with. Because when we're in court, I got to take you to a wellness recovery action plan. I got to take you to an interactive journaling. These are classes that they have. But when you give it to someone who is not inside the courtroom, that's less people going to court, because they start taking the action there, and they start saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, I can be as normal as him. And like, well, who's really normal? You're normal, you're you, and I am me. And so we go through it, and it's less people. And trust me, I get these phone calls, We get them by six, seven days a week because Mm -hmm. this is what we want to do and we know Mm -hmm. that's what the community base is and that's what it should be. Not waiting for it, but going out and giving it. Mm -hmm. Peter, if I may just uh, build upon Walter's
2: comments and Walter, I love your passion and I love how uh, you really promote and advocate for uh, access to care and just would like to reinforce that this universal prevalence of mental illness within our society is something that we can collectively rally around in that Statistics show one in five individuals struggle with a mental health disorder at any given time. And, you know, we're all families, friends, neighbors, loved ones, so on and so forth. So we all know someone that is either currently struggling with or has potentially struggled with mental illness in the past. And to loudly promote the mantra that our behavioral health advocates have really, really rallied around in the past years is that there is no health without mental health. And what this really means is that we need to develop and foster environments and societies that promote and encourage access to mental health in the same way that we do physical health care and really continue to embrace that uh, there really is no difference between those two.
0: Finally, what advice do you have for those tuning in to today's episode? Justice Goff?
1: Peter, I I think um, the most important advice I have is um, take, take responsibility and ownership for the quality of life in your community. Uh, y- you know, if you are a court professional, you are someone charged with the responsibility to offer folks a real uh, option to resolve conflict peacefully. Uh, I, I'm an old problem-solving court judge, I was a trial judge in uh, rural Indiana. Uh, at the height of the opioid epidemic. And um, it was necessary to step up and convene stakeholders to find out what we could do to keep people from dying. Uh, and that's really the, the same kind of challenge that we're confronted with uh, here. Uh, we've got a significant uh, population of folks who are being exposed to the criminal justice system and they shouldn't be. And and whether you agree with me when I say that or not, uh, you you, you recognize that it's expensive and our criminal justice resources are finite. And so I I think it's just incumbent upon us as folks who live in communities uh, to take responsibility, to take ownership for the quality of life, uh, for the legitimacy of what we do uh, as as problem solvers, as decision makers, and uh, try and work towards a, a common solution. Resources are out there. The task force is here to uh, guide and and assist you as you you, uh, take on these challenges. Uh, But uh, get started, get started. Uh, It'll make all the difference.
2: Scott? I will just succinctly say a a very similar uh, commentary to Justice Goff in that take that first step, work at a pace that's comfortable for you, and don't go at it alone. These are community solutions to community problems, and uh, we must address this with our
3: institutional and justice partners. Walter. This is why I'm on this task force. This is why it is because uh, I enjoy that, that I got the, the professionals on it, the, the justices, chief justices, the psychiatrists, that they, that my community can see these people, that they can see that there are people that care about them enough To create a task force to take care, to help them out with their mental illness, to put them now on the front line of now that you see that someone do help you, that do help help you, they care for you. And they don't have to just sit there and say, well, he's just a judge and he's just going to slam the gobble and just going to put you away. That no, we are going to work on it. And when you see this type of task forces, and I tell people all the time, when you see something from the NSCS, read it. Look at it because it's here to help you. And now I'm seeing this. It's no longer this, this huge task force them to sit there. They're now inside my little community now. They're in there. These judges are there even if they have never been there. But they are there because people, I am showing them that we have people that loves you and want to help you and want you to understand what mental illness that you have and you can be normal. And so this is one of the greatest things I I see right here. That's why I have so much passion for this.
4: Patty. You know, as a longtime state and trial court administrator, I think it's really exciting to be thinking about person-centered justice. Um, when I think of person-centered justice, I think about every person that's appearing uh, in our courts. And I think of them as our family. Um, how would I want my, my brother, my sister, my neighbor, my friend, my family, my son, my daughter to be treated um, in my justice system? And when I think of person-centered justice, I It is a a wonderful way to think about and pull all of this together, to pull together all of the resources of the task force to really be thinking how to go forward. So, again, think about person-centered justice and that person before you or talking with you um, is, uh, again, a family member, a neighbor, and how would you want them treated? And uh, so that would be my last piece of thought. Thought to leave you with. I want to
0: thank Justice Chris Goff, Scott Block, Walter Thompson, and Patty Tobias for joining us today and sharing their thoughts on what courts should be doing right now to address the crisis in mental health. We all need to join this effort, and we need to join today. As always, my thanks to you, court professionals, tuning into today's episode. You see the mental health crisis in your court every day. It's your professional work that will move the courts forward to addressing this pressing issue. Thank you. Join us on Tuesday, September 20th, for another episode dealing with the issues facing our courts. This has been the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. I'm Pete Kiefer, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leader's Advantage is a regular podcast on courts and court administration. Today's episode will be available on our website, on YouTube, on Facebook, on iTunes, on LinkedIn, and on Twitter. Become part of the conversation. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, email us. Our address is podcast that's all one word, at nakemnet.org. Did you hear an interesting comment by one of the panelists that you would like to listen to again, but you don't want to search through the entire episode to find it? The additional resources section of the webpage contains a question time marker sheet. Just find the discussion question on the sheet, and next to it is the time that question was asked. You can then quickly fast forward to that time in the episode and listen to the panelists' comments. Remember, if you don't have time to watch an episode, you can always listen to the audio version. Listen in your car, or on the bus on your way to or from work. You never have to miss an episode. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests, the Court Leader website, and the National Association for Court Management, thank you, and have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this episode are solely those of the host and the individual presenters. They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management.